The following is brought to you in part by MFC Studios. The views of the show's host and guests do not necessarily reflect those of the management, owners, or staff of this radio station. And now, it came from the radio. Again, to it came from the radio, the official the Big Apple Con. This is your host, Mark Torres, speaking. We are live in front of a studio audience for our 15th show at the East Meadow Public Library. Yeah! I am here with a very special guest, Liana Renee Ebert. Say hi. Hello, everybody. Yeah! <laughs> so this week, we're going to be talking to, with, and about her which is a good thing because she's right here. But first, we're going to take it away with the news. The news is brought to you in part by the fine folks of the Big Apple Con, which we are the official radio show of, celebrating over 22 years of pop culture-ness and comic book stuff. For more information, go to www.bigapplecc.com. Their next convention will be in March 9th of 2019, and they will have none other than William Shatner as their headliner. And we're also brought to you in part by the fine folks of the Comic Bar Con, which essentially is a comic book convention inside a local small bar in Long Island. Um, the next convention will be on February 2nd, 2019. For more information, go to www.fatguyinc and do a little backslash and look up uh, Comic Bar Con. And also we have the Patreon. So I want to do a shout out for all our Patreons, of which have generated, have generated, had generously donated some of their money for our little show. So we got a shout out for Danny Grillo, Jared Burrell, Two Sentence Horror, Ryan McDonald, and Millie Portes. So if you guys want your own little shout out, go to www.patreon.com and look up It Came From Radio on the Search for And just for a measly dollar, you can get your own little shout out on our show. We have uh, other things such as prints, um, stickers, uh, you can be a guest on the show. Um, and of course, for those of you who have been paying attention to all of these years that we've been on the air, for a measly $10,000, you can have an evening with our co-host, Dominic Sperano, who's not here with us today. Hopefully, uh, he's doing all right. Um, it will include going to all the best bars, and if you're 21 and over, go to all the best bars in New York uh, City and the best comic book stores in New York, and you get as many pronto comics as you can carry. Uh, we will fly you out and or fly you in, depending where you live. And you get a hotel room, so all that for a measly $10,000, which is on our Patreon page as well. But now, let's take it away with the news. So let's see. Um, I'm going to start with the sad news. Sad news first. Actor Ken Berry, best known for his role in the sitcom F Troop in the 1960s, died this past month. Uh, the cause of death has yet to been released. Uh, for those of you who do not know, Ken starred in such TV shows as Dr. Kildare, Carol Burnett Show, Mama's Family, Maggie Winters, and the aforementioned F Troop, just to name a few. On the big screen, Ken appeared in such films as Herbie Rides Again, The Cat from Outer Space, and Guardians of the Wilderness. 
um, of note, Ken served in the Special Services Division of the Army, where he met late actor Leonard Nimoy, who was his commanding officer, and it was Leonard who convinced Ken to pursue acting. He was 85. Were you a uh, F Troop fan? I actually was, yeah. I was. I was an F Troop fan. I watched that a lot growing up. So you do remember uh, Ken Barrett? Absolutely Barry? do, yeah. No, it, that, I was quite struck by that news. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? Because I know no. you're, you're an actress on the side. I am, I am. But no, he's not one I got to meet. But, but, uh, but yeah, he's very memorable on, on screen. So moving along, let's see. Ooh, okay. Um, from the It Looks Like a Spinoff Department. Uh, the new Men in Black film, officially called Men in Black International, is now being touted as a spin-off as opposed to a direct sequel or a reboot, as it has actress Emma Thompson reprising her role as Agent O, but with an all-new cast of Liam Neeson, Chris Hemsworth, and Tessa Thompson. For those of you not paying attention, Men in Black is a 1997 film based on the comic book of the same name, starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, which spawned two sequels, as well as an animated series which lasted four seasons from 1997 to 2001. You a Men in Black fan? Oh, absolutely, and I'm very excited about this. I mean, the Thompsons, are you kidding me? <laughs> Do we have any uh, Men in Black fans in our audience? Yeah! yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Um, okay, moving along. Uh, from the Everyone Gets a Podcast Department. For those of you who simply cannot get enough of Ron Burgundy, the titular character from the Anchorman film series starring Will Ferrell, um, head on over to iHeartRadio where Ron will have his own podcast. Ron says, <clears throat> I don't know what a podcast is, but I currently have a lot of time on my hands and a lot to talk about. I am also broke. Therefore, I am very excited to do this podcast. It is literally saving my life. <laughs> By the way, if iHeartRadio says that I harassed them into making a podcast, this is a lie, a bold-faced lie. Did I call them 100 times in one day? Yes, but that's called persistence. I have filed suit against iHeartRadio for these salacious claims, and I, and I will be representing myself legally since I currently do not have enough money to hire an attorney. Um, the podcast, which is set for, 12, for two 12-episode seasons, will be on iHeartRadio in 2019. But in the meantime, you can hear our show right now, unless you're already listening to us on iHeartRadio. And in that case, I say hello and thank you. Is, is the Will Ferrell program sponsored by Scotch? It should be sponsored <laughs> it by should Scotch be. if it's not. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's, it's a great sponsorship <laughs> opportunity for Scotch. Um, oh, okay. So moving along. Uh, from the Beat a Dead Horse Over and Over department, Universal Pictures has announced a sequel to the surprise hit Happy Death Day, titled Happy Death Day to You, which picks up just after the events of the first movie where a girl keeps reliving her birthday after getting killed until she figures out who is killing her. Uh, the sequel brings back the entire cast from the first film as well as the original writer and director. So Happy Death Day Part 2 comes out in theaters on Valentine's Day 2019. Did you uh, see that movie? Nope, missed that one. It was, it was a pretty good little horror movie. Did you guys, anybody in the audience see that movie? I fell asleep. <laughs> one, one fell asleep, one no, all right. It, it was, I thought it was a pretty decent movie. It kind of reminded me of the, um, the Sam Raimi movie with the girl who was haunted. And she was like a not nice person, but she like redeemed herself that she went to hell because she stole from like a gypsy. It was a couple of years ago, a lot of years ago actually. Um, 
Go to hell, maybe it was called. Maybe. Yeah, okay. Yeah, drag me to hell. Drag me to hell, look at that. Okay. Thank there you, you thank you, live studio audience. <laughs> but yeah, it kind of reminded me of that with a little bit of Groundhog Day. It was, okay. it was pretty, I thought it was pretty good. It was a little surprise, slice of heaven to watch that movie. And now I'm kind of interested to see where okay. they take that idea for the sequel. I always like to see where things go. Um, from, oh, so speaking of sequels, from the Sony still hasn't learned anything, but this time it may work department. <laughs> Sony who still has the rights to the Spider-Man universe, has announced a sequel to the latest animated Spidey flick into the Spider-Verse days before the first movie being released in theaters. Um, Joaquim Dos Santos of Avatar, the last Airbender fame, has been tapped to direct, and Beck Smith, best known for writing the TV series Zoo, will write this all-female Spidey animated film. For those of you not paying attention, Sony once announced six films just before the second, second Spider-Man film, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, hit theaters uh, and due to the film being a box office and critical quote-unquote failure, pulling in quote-unquote just $709 million, making it the lowest grossing film of the Spider-Man franchise at the time, nixed any and all future live-action Spider-Man related films, as well as striking a deal with Disney to include Spider-Man for Captain America 3, until Venom was made and released earlier this year. So they are now, once again, announcing a sequel to a movie that has not come out, and I don't, I don't know if that's is, uh, such a good idea. What do you think? I don't know about that. I'm just excited for Spider-Gwen. You so are excited. I'm excited for Spider-Gwen, so, and I like Miles Morales a lot, so, and I also really love Tom Holland as oh, yeah. Spider-Man, so, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, you know, Spider-Man right now is doing all right by me, so they so you, can announce whatever they it. want. You're going to buy into oh, it. Oh, I'm there. I'm there for all of this. So. Okay. It better happen. <laughs> it, it might. Um, let's see. Moving on from the It's All About Time department. Avengers No Road Home, issue 6, will feature none other than Conan the Barbarian as a special guest star. Marvel says, It all starts when the Scarlet Witch enters the Hyborian Age and continues when the Avengers take their fight to the Queen of the Night. And while Conan and the Avengers will fight together, the question remains, whose side is Conan really on? Uh, the sixth issue of Avengers No Road Home, which also introduces a Conan story by Al Ewing, Mark Wade, and Jim Zub, uh, will be released in March 20th of 2019. Are you a Conan fan? Not particularly, but I will be curious to see how they merge something that is a very, very old property with something that has new momentum from the, the new Marvel directions. So I'm very curious to see how they blend all of that. Hopefully it will be, it will be good. <laughs> I, I will reserve judgment until I see it. I'm, I'm thinking um, they, they have done time travel stories before. They have done, uh, when they've been to the past, uh, Avengers in the comic book. And Marvel did have the license to make uh, Conan books. And Conan has appeared in cameos and won little panels and stuff in Marvel sure. comics before. But this is like their first time big ever crossover in the main universe. They mm -hmm. had a what if with Conan fought uh, Captain America, but this is like officially he's in the universe. I think it'll be very interesting. It all depends on, on how well it's written. It actually reminds me of um, a story I was told one time when they were, when I was my favorite writer, Peter David, and they had asked him who would win in a fight between this character and this character. And he said, if you're ever a fan of comics, the debate is a very simple answer of a who would win and who fights it. Whoever is the writer. It depends on the writer. So if you say, oh, who will win a fight between Batman 
and, um, oh, I don't know, Thanos, it all depends on a writer. If it's written well, Batman can very well beat Thanos. So I think that's an interesting play on who is the better fighter. So it's I mean, interesting. I mean, I, I like that. It's putting the power in the hands of the writer. I mean, I, I appreciate that answer. <laughs> so I'm, a li- I'm a little biased. Uh, you're, you're biased? Is, is that because you are a writer? Is that, is that why? I am, and that, I, I, I fully confess my bias there. So how would you, how would you write something like that if you were going to write The Avengers versus Conan? How, how would you make it an even or interesting fight? Um, I mean, I would, I would try to bring Conan up to speed on what modernity is. I mean, that, I think that would be, for me, any sort of time travel story is how do you deal with someone who would be ripped from their time and then adapting to a new world. I mean, I was a big fan of the first couple seasons of Sleepy Hollow because I loved how Ichabod Crane was this character who is out of time fumbling with modern technology. And when he does the big, you know, monologue to the OnStar lady who's in the car and then it's a great way to, like, you know, have all this sense of backstory. It was just, like, a way in which to utilize technology to tell a backstory of someone who has no understanding of that technology. So I would do something along those lines of how do you represent a fish-out-of-water story, but do it amusingly, but also still in a way that's a commentary on our modern age. All right. That doesn't get any type of response from the audience. It was a great answer. <laughs> this is a, this is a radio well, show. We're supposed to, we need to hear you if you enjoy what the guest is saying. Uh, moving along, <laughs> man. That, that's, that's right. You can cheer when I ta- start talking about my books. Then this, you can start cheering. That's okay. Is, I, thank you. Thank you. This For, is a I, I, I don't have tough you know, crowd. Tough crowd. Oh, it's it's all right. It's all right. I've, I'm I'm an actor. I've, I've seen it before. It's fine. Uh, so finally, last bit of news from the drunk not tipsy department. A recent study in New Zealand has concluded that James Bond, based on all of his 24 films, is a quote severe alcoholic, unquote, due to how frequently... (laughs) We have applause for alcoholism right here. uh, Due to how frequently he drinks on screen. Uh, I can't believe it. I mean, martinis are less. I mean, those are hard. I mean, those those aren't like... No, no. None of us are surprised by this. Researchers say there is a strong and consistent evidence that James Bond has chronic alcohol consumption problem that at the severe end of the spectrum. Um, MI6 management needs to redefine Bond's job to reduce his stress levels. And to start with, M should no longer offer James Bond drinks in the workplace settings. The story, the study concluded that because of the proximity <laughs> between the scenes of Bond drinking and the undertaking super spy antics, it is likely that he is often driving, flying, shooting, and doing other dangerous things while legally impaired. Um, the most dangerous drinking Bond has ever done was reportedly in 2008 film Quantum of Solace, in which he was seen consuming the equivalent of 24 units of alcohol on a plane. Uh, the study determined that this could have elevated his blood alcohol level to near fatal levels, so it could have killed him. Yeah, but it was Daniel Craig, so you just, just don't think that alcohol is going to be the thing to do that guy in. I just You think it would be something else, but... I'm more surprised at the audience reaction <laughs> to, the, to the alcoholism of James Bond than anything else we've said so far. Oh, man. Well, I mean, he did drink a beer in the last one, which I thought was very strange. 
I just, I just think that's so. So, as as a writer, do, do you see these things when you're watching? Like, to my huh. way in. No, yeah, no, like, I mean, huh, he seems like he drinks a lot in this film. Yes, because James Bond drinks a lot. Like, you know, how he takes his drink is a is a is a part of the core storytelling of the Bond franchise. Right, and it is a, it is something of a certain era. So, I I also just I, I think when you're looking at a story that is compressed. You know, if it, if it was actual, like an actual MI6 mission is not going to be done in the same way. So you're compressing a lot. So I think it's not accounting for the fact that, like, yes, you're seeing the shot with the martini because it's, like, setting an atmosphere. It's not necessarily real time. Uh-huh, I think that's okay. a, I mean, I think you're watching a, a version of events. I don't think that it's, I, I don't think you can sort of translate that. So it's not an actual to, portrayal of what's happening. It's, I, it's, I, it's not like it's 24, which is also not an accurate portrayal either of 24 hours. But, you know, it's, I don't, I, for me, I don't look at that and go, oh, that's realism. Because I don't think anything about the James Bond franchise <laughs> is realism. So I'm not expecting it to be realism. I'm expecting it to be heightened. So thusly, everything is a bit much. So, of course, the drinking is a bit much, but that's, that to me, that's not where I draw the line. I think, I mean, as a, as a young woman, I think the womanizing would be a little bit more of a concern for me than the alcohol. So. It's, it's, oh, now, now they know. There we now go. They know. There we go. Um, it's funny you mentioned 24, because when they did that season, when they were in New York, they made the whole, the, the, the executive producers and the writers said that even though it is New York and it is 24 hours, they had to take certain liberties because he can't get anywhere in Midtown Manhattan. No. In or the, oh, yeah, it would right. be half no. the show or right there. On, yeah, half the show you're on the subway or like, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you know, or you're in traffic. So, exactly. And no. they just made sure that everything was 15 minutes away from everything else in that, in that thing. And I was like, that's just so and, not. And even that, that <laughs> not right, yeah. And then there was a show called Revenge. Did you ever watch that show? So the show called Revenge on ABC, and um, it was about well this girl getting revenge who lived in um, the Hamptons, and she had uh, people who also were in Manhattan, and so in the show in the show they had her going from the Hamptons to Manhattan in fifteen twenty minutes time, <laughs> and I'm sitting there like I live in New York this is like an impossibility, yeah. even if they took a helicopter there's no way. And in the show, it was just such a common thing. So that was like the the, the suspense of disbelief was just gone completely. But but yeah, so it's just one of those one of those things. So um, that's it for the news. So we're going to take our break. We'll be right back with the came from the radio. Yeah. Michael McManus, I played Kai on Lex. You're listening to It Came From The Radio. Hi, you've heard my voice open and close the show. Now we want to hear your voice. If you have a business or product, you can record a commercial here. We offer 30 and 60 second spots. For more information, contact Mark at MFC underscore studios at hotmail.com. Hey guys, want to impress everyone at your next party? Shock them all with a custom cake. Anything goes. Classic wedding cakes to wild party themes. Follow my social media for weekly videos and photos. We're a Long Island-based cake shop. Custom Cakes by Christie Incorporated. K-R-I-S-T-Y. Call or text anytime. 631-606-8166. Hi, this is Sue Lee from Face Off Season 2. You're listening to It Came From The Radio. Hello everyone, this is Envoy Comic Distributors, the independent distributor for independent minds. We represent some of the finest small press and self-publishers out there today. 
To learn more about us and our publishers, search for Envoy Comic Distributors on Facebook. And shop for us online at envoy.storeenvy.com. That's E-N-V-O-Y dot S-T-O-R-E-N-V-Y dot com. Have a great day. This is Quentin Flynn, a popular voice actor known for Axel, Tamon, uh, and Raiden from the Metal Gear series. And you're listening to It Came From The Radio. Stick around. Now, back to our show. And we are back with It Came From The Radio, the official of the Big Out Con, and our 15th show in front of a live studio audience at the East Metal Toy Library. And as I mentioned, we're going to be talking with, to, and about writer, actress, model. What else is there? Am I missing? Ghost tour guide. That's right. That's right. Ghost tour guide. Artist. And artist. And playwright. <laughs> and playwright. Anything else? Um, stage manager. Stage manager. Mm-hmm. I thought that pretty much covers it, yeah. So, uh, a Jane of all trades? Yep. Linnea Renee Hebert. So... We actually um, had you, we were at the East Metal Public Library for the MCON, yeah. and we had a nice little chat about all the many things you did. And it's, 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 we just scratched the surface of, of, what, of what you do. So why don't we talk about what is the main thing that you do, and we'll branch off from there. Sounds good. So the main thing that I do is I'm a novelist. Um, if I, I have... Uh, a great love of and, and a background in professional theater. That was what I trained in officially and then sort of on the side was training as a writer um, all my life. I was writing ever since I was performing, which started when I was very young. I started my first novel when I was 11 and it's been with me ever since um, writing, especially in the 19th century. Why am I drawn to the 19th century? I can't really explain that other than I think it's maybe a past life because I grew up as a kid really obsessed with the 19th century. Um, Clothes, art, music, architecture, just something of that time period really called to me. It felt familiar, and so I started writing books set in that time period to really kind of channel a certain sense of home at another time period. So I've always felt like I was living sort of in two time periods. So of course something like Doctor Who really appeals to me because the idea of time travel um, and the ability to touch down in these other places and other times and other worlds always really appealed to me. And I have been a fan of that ever since I was seven. So Tom Baker will always be my doctor. But um, with being a writer um, and being a professional actor and all of that being entwined. Um, I spent years touring around the professional theater circuit all, all around the country and when I got to New York City I joined the Actors Union, Actors Equity and I was at a Broadway callback and all I could think about was my book. So I stopped um, auditioning and I just started writing more full-time uh, all while balancing all the rest of my other side jobs because that's what one has to do uh, to be a, a living working artist. And um, once I started focusing really on writing as my main focus, that's when the contacts that I was making professionally, everything started to sort of fall in place. And the book that I'd been querying for nine years finally found an agent, then found a publisher, and then my publishing career began. And that's really been at the forefront. Um, all the rest of the things that I do have taken are a little bit more in the background. Um, but in the forefront, I'm a novelist, and I'm really thrilled that my uh, 12th novel just came out. Uh, November 27th, so very recently. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. Twelve novels. So when did you do your first 
novel? So my first novel came out in 2009. It was called The Strangely Beautiful Tale of Miss Percy Parker. And it hit Barnes and Noble's bestseller lists and Borders bestseller lists. And it got a lot of great praise. And I was three books into that series when my publisher went belly up and went bankrupt. And it was a really, really tough thing for me because it was not only was my career then sort of in jeopardy, but so was all the money that I was owed from that publisher. So that was really tough to crawl back out of that. But I just kept writing and I sold a different book to a different publisher that was not bankrupt and, you know, and kind of went from there. So my worlds are parallel worlds. So the nice thing is that when I started writing for the next publisher and then the, set, the next publisher after that, I could bring some of my characters with me. And then finally, when I started publishing with Tor, um, T-O-R, Tor Books is a very famous fantasy house. I was very honored to sign with them. They were able to get my backlist and republish those first books. So next year is the 10th anniversary of my Strangely Beautiful series. So they republished them and uh, as Strangely Beautiful, thank you. Thank you. And the fourth and final book in that series, which was never, which had never been published because that pu publishing company went under. Uh, I had been contracted for it, had not been paid for it. So that the fourth and final book in that quartet never came out. It will come out in February, and I'm very, very pleased that Miss Violet and the Great War will finally be out, and the series will finally finish after ten years. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So let's let's start with the business aspect because how. Well, how easy is it or how difficult is it to find the right publisher for your book? Well, it took a really long time. It was, you know, I was querying and submitting and, and retooling and reworking my first novel for nine years. Um, and all of that was trying to find the right house for it. At that time, um, in the early mid-2000s, uh, the type of cross-genre fiction that I do, which is historical, fantasy, it's got a slight element of horror, slight element of romance, mystery, suspense, young adult. All of these things are crossover aspects that are all in my work. At that time, publishers would say and agents would say, I really like this, I don't know where to shelve it. The resurgence of the young adult market really opened up cross-genre not being a bad word in the industry anymore. And so the, the space that started to be made by a lot of women writers doing things like urban fantasy. So par the paranormal genre, both in YA and also in like the suspense and the romantic suspense angles, when they were starting to allow for the paranormal to come in, there started to be this cross-genre interesting markets that were opening up. And so I just was writing into a market that began to be open and more open and more open. So now as a primarily, I'm, I'm shelved in fantasy. So if you're looking for my books in Barnes and Noble, they're in the fantasy aisle now. But it took several aisles to get there because my first publisher published me in the romance section because there was a romance in it, but it was also as much a fantasy novel as anything else. Then my second publisher published me in the YA shelf because they were teenage main characters. Um, even though in the 19th century the word teenager didn't exist yet. That didn't exist until the 20th century. So they are just young adults. And now I'm shelved as I kind of maybe always should have been in fantasy, but it's been interesting to be on all these different sides of the aisle. So the, 
the industry didn't have space for me initially, but I, I kept doing what I was doing and found a space within it. And so that's also my sort of advice to people. If you're writing something that doesn't seem like it's where the market is, that's okay. The market's constantly changing. Don't write it to the market. Write what you want to write, and you'll find a place to put it at some point therein. therein. So it's interesting for my current series, my latest baby is called The Spectral City. Spectral, as in specters, because it's a book full of ghosts. So my latest book being The Spectral City is a book all about um, psychic detectives. So if you liked the show Medium with Patricia Arquette helping you know, solve crimes by being psychic, and if you also liked a recent adaptation of my favorite novel, which is The Alienist by Caleb Carr, one of my favorite books of all time. I love, love, love that book and also love its sequel as well. Um, if you like those properties and want to mush them together, well, then that's, that's the spectral city. It's psychics helping the NYPD in 1899 under a small secret department that uh, Governor Theodore Roosevelt put together in 1899. So that's, that's my premise for the spectral city. And in this... In this series, it's also very cross-genre, very cross-genre. It has um, got a little bit of mystery. It's got suspense. It has some horror angle. It, there's, there's two people that find each other very attractive, so there's sort of a like tertiary romance subplot in all of it. And again, it's just it's what I've been doing all my life. It's absolutely a cross-genre thing that I'm able to... Thankfully, someone is, is able to market and put out on the shelves. I've gotten really good um, response for this. There's a, a technical term now that didn't exist back when I started. The technical term now for my genre is called gas lamp fantasy. That gas lamp fantasy. It's a, it's, it is an actual uh, library. There's a library code. You're a librarian, dude. What's the? It's the Bia, the, the Biasic code. There's a code that has that's. She has to confess. <laughs> All right, well, we're in a library, so somewhere in there, somewhere in here, someone would know the actual acronym for the, the term that you designate things within genres within a library. So that's the new code for that is like, it, I don't exactly remember what the acronym is, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a delineation. And the term gas lamp fantasy did not exist until last year even though I've been writing in the genre for a long time. So basically what that term means is it's fantasy, but it's set in a gaslit era. So the gas lamp as a word is letting you know the type of time period. It is in reference also then to the word steampunk because the word steampunk is about Victorian science fiction, 19th century, like, I, well, J Jules Verne was, was the original steampunk, but now modern authors writing in a Victorian setting, but doing so with steam-powered technology, that's steampunk. Gaslamp fantasy is doing things in a similar time period, but it's using fantasy elements like magic and supernatural things, not tech. My characters don't solve things by technological means. They solve things with fantastical devices. They solve things with... Um, things that are, are more in align with a fantasy uh, trope than it is with a sci-fi trope. So Gaslight Fantasy was specifically created to beat a distinguishing characteristic from steampunk. So for me, the industry has been finding my way in the divergent types of subgenres. So, and that's been the tough thing to navigate, but thankfully I've managed just... You know, I've been writing the same kinds of things with the same kinds of subgenres, and now I finally, thankfully, the industry has words for those that didn't exist when I was querying. In the so it's, it's kind of weird how you managed to 
be a pioneer of this, and then the company and the universe fit into you. So if you were, as you say, a, a born of a different life, you, you were back in the old times, it would never have came to be. But because you're living in this time right now, you're able to bring your style of writing to the masses because the, the, the universe around it has adapted to it. I, I'm very grateful that my publisher, Tor, calls my first series a foundation work of Gaslamp fantasy. They call that like a part of that pioneering thing for this modern era. And I'm really grateful that they say that because I sort of, you know, I, it's hard to see when you're in it. You're just, you're writing the love of your life and you're just in it. Um, and, and you don't necessarily think about how that's going to have a, any kind of greater impact at all. Um, I was just blending genres that I loved separately that I really wanted to mush together and hopefully, you know, it works and thankfully it does. Um, but, um, but thank you. <laughs> thank you. So I, I certainly, I, I honestly am very grateful for being in this modern era because, I mean, it, women, of course, were writing in the 19th century, but, but Mary Shelley spent most of her life apologizing for Frankenstein. So, I mean, she spent a lot of her life, like, just trying to say, you know, hey, this is what I meant by this book. Folks were so rubbed raw by this teenager and her dream creating and changing the world of literature and she and she just got a lot of flack for it throughout the whole of her life and that's something I don't have to face um you know there's there's I mean there's all kinds of of setbacks and pushbacks in all kinds of industries I mean it's you know it, it's certainly not easy but I certainly have a much easier time of it than than anyone did in the 19th century I certainly don't make the 19th century an easy rosy place I find I'm drawn to writing about it because it was full of conflict and it was a difficult time period so speaking of doing multiple things as an actress and a writer have you ever written something for yourself to act in? Funny that you mention that because just this year, I launched a new one-woman show called By the Light of Tiffany, and it follows a real woman, and in an hour, I give you the whole, uh, sort of the whole overview of her life. Her name is Clara Driscoll, Clara Walcott Driscoll. She was born in northern Ohio in the middle of nowhere. I myself was born in southern Ohio in the middle of nowhere. And she, in 1888, moved to New York City after having trained at the Women's Reserve College of Design in what is now the Cleveland Art Institute. She studied there. She went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art School, which at the time, in the 1880s, was three-fourths student population of women. And then she started working for Louis Comfort Tiffany, the famous designer of stained glass. And she did all of his famous stained glass lamps. She's the one who did the dragonfly lamp, the wisteria lamp. When you think of Louis Comfort Tiffany's stained glass lamps, you're thinking of Clara Driscoll. And she has a whole wing now devoted to her at the New York Historical Society. And it's gorgeous and a beautiful place to go to walk into this beautifully lit room. And I do a one-woman show, 50 Minutes, uh, where I talk about her life. She left us 
reams and reams and reams of actual letters. And so a lot of the actual words that I say are her actual words from her letters home to her family talking about her designs. And it's very, very special to me having a similar life of coming to New York as this artist with big dreams. Um, and she did a lot of wonderful things and I want the world to know more about her. And so I was, uh, I, I looked through a lot of her letters in special collections libraries. I read a lot of books about her and I tried to summarize her life. And so that was my most recent thing. And so if people go onto my website, which is lianareneheber.com, L-E-A-N-N-A-R-E-N-E-E-H-I-E-B-E-R.com, and you look for By the Light of Tiffany, you will see information about the show. I do tour it around and travel it around, and I already have some 2019 dates booked on the calendar, so I'm excited that that's now a thing. I had, I, I did, I missed the stage. I had to go back into it. I'm a very character-driven novelist. My works are completely driven by the characters. Plot, you know, comes sort of, you know, secondary. Like, the characters tell me where they want to go, and I make it work. So I'm definitely coming at it from a performer's perspective. So as a performer's perspective, um, you've been on film, you've been on stage, now, when you do film, it's, it's a whole different animal than being on stage, and then you're by yourself. So when you do a performance such as that, does it change at all, or is it the exact same thing each and every time? Um, film stuff, I mean, I, I've admittedly done much less film work than I have done stage work. Um, and the times in which I've had more prominent things on screen has been things where I've been more of a talking head. I, I did an episode of the show Mysteries at the Museum, I was called upon to talk about Victorian spiritualism um, because I'm sort of an expert in the field and, and I do have some you know, screen training, so that was a really good fit. Um, in terms of uh, doing stage performance things, it's, it's different every time. All, each one of these aspects is different every time. Um, every take uh, with, that you're doing on screen is different. Every, everything is different, and I think that's why I love performing so much is because there is nothing that's the same about any aspect of it. It's always fresh. It's always different, even if you're saying the same lines, um, especially touring a show like By the Light of Tiffany. I'm in a different space every time that I'm doing it, too, and so that keeps things always fresh, and I have to be very aware and very present in the moment. I'm, I, I'm very often very much in my head as a writer. It forces me to kind of be in the present, to deal with the surroundings, to be able to take those changes as they come. And as being in the present, but you focus a lot in the past, you did mention you did the ghost tours, and there's a lot of uh, ghosty stuff happening. So do you, A, believe in ghosts? And do you have a, an experience you'd like to share Absolutely. With the so I do believe in, in the paranormal. I do believe in ghosts. And I've had many different experiences um, by which uh, I, I have had interactions with the spirit world. Now, I don't rush to that as my first conclusion. My first conclusion is if the lights flicker, there's probably a wiring issue. If, you know, if, I'm, if, I, if I pass into a really, really cold spot, you know, sometimes paranormal, the idea of cold spots are a thing where the temperature is drastically different. I'll first see if I'm actually in an area where there is a draft. I will always go to the scientific first because I am, I am a person of science. I'm also a person of belief. I don't think that these two things are mutually exclusive. I don't think these two things are in conflict. Um, I, I will see if there's a scientific explanation first. And then if there is not, I'll be like, okay, well, this goes into the we don't know category. And I'm fine with there being a we don't know category. And uh, so I know what I hear. I know what I've seen. I know what I've felt. I don't tend to have visual manifestations as much as I've had um, what is known as a clairaudient haunting, which is you hear something 
and, uh, and, and hear something that you can't really otherwise describe. Probably my most visceral experience, I've had many, but probably the most visceral one was when I was in Salem, Massachusetts, as one would expect, a haunted town. Um, and I was in the Hawthorne Hotel, which dates to back to about the 1920s. And um, I was awoken right at the witching hour, 3 a.m., just out, just right, just bolt awake, uh, right at 3 o'clock, right? You know, looking at the clock in the horror movie, and it's 3 o'clock, and you know that that's the time. Oh, oh, it's time. They're coming. Um, and I heard this jingling sound going up and down the hallway. And it was an odd jingling sound, but it was very distinctly the sound of keys. We all know what the sound of keys are. It's a very specific sound, but it sounded very far away. See, exactly. I, I heard that. But I heard it as, the, as if I were listening to it through a shell or, or, or glass. It felt very far away, but it was so distinct. And it was going up the hallway and down the hallway and up the hallway and down the hallway. And me being a storyteller, I think about, well, what could these things be? Me also being a ghost tour guide, I'm also like, well, what is that? Oh, that's probably a, a caretaker for the hotel. Because, see, it's not a guest because it's all key card entry. You don't jingle your keys when you're getting into your room at the Hawthorne. It's a card that you get out. So automatically, just from that evidence, it's like, well, if somebody's jingling their keys, it's not about the room now. So I thought maybe it's this, maybe it's like a caretaker. Maybe it's, you know, someone who's looking in on the, on the, on the, prep, the property, the premises. And as I'm thinking this, the jingling sound is getting closer and closer to the end of the hallway where I am. And just as I sort of think that this must be what this is, the sound stops right outside my door. And then the next thing I hear is another one of those very distinct sounds. And we all know this sound. It was the sound of a fingernail on the wooden headboard of the wooden headboard right by my head, three inches above my face. And that got a little close for comfort. That, I mean, I spend a lot of time talking about ghosts, and I'm actually really not scared of them, but that was too close for comfort. So I just blurted out, because in my training and in my knowledge, a lot of times ghosts just want to be acknowledged, right? So I just blurted out, um, the room is fine, it's wonderful, thank you for all your hard work through the years, thanks. Beat. Jingle, 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 jingle down the hall. And that's the last I heard of the sound. And then I needed an hour for my heart rate to go back down and go back to sleep. And so the funny thing is, as I go to the desk the next morning, I'm like, do you guys have any stories about a haunting in 606? And I'm like, no, 604, but 606? No, tell us. <laughs> so then I did, and then it, sure enough, it got added to their roster of ghost stories that they, that they use to lure customers in. So it's part of their game plan. It's part of their business strategy. So <laughs> I was I glad to be a part of it. That is Living crazy. history. So... Yeah. All right, so um, one of the things, um, as, a, as a fellow writer, um, I know that a character that you make has to have tons of backstory that never make it into the book. We actually mentioned this at the, when we were interviewing it at the MCON. Um, is it possible to make so many characters that you can get them mixed up, or does each character have a life and, and voice of their own, and do you hear them talking to you? you? Earlier you said that they write themselves. They do. They do. It's, it's a very fine line. As long as your voices in your head sound pretty much like you somehow, but you just sort of thinking your thoughts through, you're fine. If it starts to sound different, then maybe see a doctor. Um, so it's, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. But, um, but I definitely, um, they're very real to me. And one of the reasons why I do continue with so many of the same characters is so that I can give a chance to allow that backstory to come through. So by the time that you have read 
my series. Now, you don't have to read any of my work before. Spectral City is a great place to start. If you're wondering, where should I start with your books? Start with Spectral City. It's the latest of my books, and it also doesn't require that you know anything else. Each of the book, book one of any of my series is a great place to start because you don't have to have any other knowledge coming in. If you do know my other work, then you'll be reminded of familiar faces and you'll be like, oh, hey, here are old friends. Nice to see you again, sort of thing. But they're in different contexts and they're solving different mysteries. So, um, but that ability to sort of, I don't, I'm not too worried about making sure that we find out all about our our elder matriarch's history because I've told you a whole lot about it in these other books. So, and she, and, and she knows that's not important right now. I think a big mistake that character, that writers will make is sometimes throwing too much backstory that's not relevant in the moment. So making sure that you know what's the important thing at that, at this particular time, what's the relevant tidbit? What's the relevant thing that's gonna move the plot forward at this moment? And that's the thing I always have to ask myself because I wanna give you all the details, but not all the details are gonna help in the moment and certainly not gonna help the pacing of the novel. So um, I definitely uh, feel that um, I, I don't worry about repeating the same kinds of characters because I just use the character that, that, that I need. Because I've already established, all right, this person does this, and this person does this, and they each have separate talents. So when I need somebody who's a psychometric, who can touch something and know its back history, I know that I either go to my, I've got two characters, and one of them's dead. So, um, so, so, so I, I, know, I know who to go to for that, for if I need that trick. My, a lot of my books are about assembling the gang, getting the gang together, like the Scooby gang, getting everybody who has their separate thing. I, I'm, I'm a huge get the Scooby gang together to solve the crime kind of writer. So everybody's got their own special skill. Um, you know, I'm very much, I mean, I'm very much informed by team dynamics. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I really, really love are about making a good team, putting it together, making it work, making it happen. I, I was, I'm, was a very much a Star Trek The Next Generation girl. So uh, get your good team together and get a good captain and you're off um, helping the world. So that's kind of, you know, that's for me, there is, there's my prime directive. So of team building, back, because you said you've written this for many years and you've developed all the characters all the years, and even before that, you had all this backstory that you've had well in mind. In today's day and age, especially right now in 2018, December, there's so much push towards um, the alternate characters. There's so much push towards the LGBTQ characters. Is that something that now you say, oh, well, now I have to adjust to reflect these things, or did you have them always in there, or you just, I'm going to write what I'm going to write and let the world come around? No, my, my books have always been diverse. My books have always featured characters of color. My books have always featured folks who are somewhere in different identities, um, who love who they love. And because it is unrealistic, historically speaking, I am a, I'm a, a licensed New York City tour guide. And looking at the history of New York City, if you're not talking about a diverse, culturally rich New York City, then what kind of city are you talking about? Like, I don't know, I don't, you know, there is nothing homogenous about New York City, and so it would be historically inaccurate for me to leave any of that out. So it's, you know, also I'm writing about folks who are already kind of off of the mainstream. So of course, people are gonna find that they feel like they belong in my stories because it's a hodgepodge of outcasts. So for me also, none of that, I, I feel no pressure 
towards anything, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because my world is very diverse and my world is full of people of all kinds of different backgrounds and identities. So it would be unrealistic if I didn't represent my world and then also this historic world, which I know is just as varied um, as, I mean, we're, we're, there's nothing that's a modern invention that wasn't in play at that point. So that's, you know, it's, it's far more historically accurate to represent a history that is diverse and full of a bunch of different kinds of backgrounds and identities. Oh, that's awesome. Um, we have almost 10 minutes to go, so it's time for the raffle. So we're going to raffle off one copy of Spectral City. And you also said you were going to have a key. Is there a key? Yeah, so there's this beautiful Victorian key. My publisher did a pre-order campaign and created this and, and had this gorgeous Victorian key, which is also a bottle opener, so that you can have spirits <laughs> with my spirits. So one lucky winner will win the key and the book, and it goes to number... Let's see what we're missing. Four, three, seven, two, two, one. Four, three, seven, two, two, one. Right. Come on up. You won. Huzzah. You see, the, the audience never likes when other people win. <laughs> she gets her book, and she's signing it right now, and she's all happy, and we're all good, and she signs it. She gets us all, all the contact information is in there, and then she's very happy, and she's coming back because we're still on the radio. We are still on Thank you for narrating all of the play-by-play -play here. That's, that's what I tend to do. I love it. So we have, um, now we have less than uh, five minutes to go. So with five minutes left, do you want to promote anything? Last place to mention all the websites. Any way people can get to contact yes. you, can hire you, can hire you for writing, can hire you for acting, whatever they want to all do. Can they? My yes. website has uh, information for everything. So L-E-A-N-N-A-R-E-N-E-E-H-I-E-B-E-R.com. So that is LeanaReneeHeber.com. And I am on all the social medias. So if you type in... Uh, Liana and my and and the beginnings of Renee. My name will what well, my name will come up. If if you just do Le, Leanne, then Leanne Rhymes comes up. But um, <laughs> other than that, like I'm if you keep going into my name a little bit, it I come up after that. So there, I have enough Google foo um, in my times of of how much has been written about me and my work to to come up there. So um, I am on uh, I'm most active on Twitter because the publishing world. If those of, if those of you who are interested in being writers. Um, Definitely track uh, publishers and agents and uh, industry folks on Twitter because that's where a lot of they that, that's where they are. So my I of of any of the social media platforms that I'm on, I'm most active on Twitter. I do have an Instagram, uh, and so that's my full name is an Instagram. My my first and middle name, Leanna Renee, is my Twitter handle, and I also have a Facebook. But I'm I'm the, I'm probably on there the least. Um, in this day and age, publishers expect for you to have something have a, a, a digital presence in all the various social media streams so you know they anticipate that but um, yeah so I'm, I'm there and I'm always there and available to answer questions there's a contact form on my website there's also a um, writer's resource guide on my website um, I've, I've listed all of the resources that were helpful to me when I was starting out and so I've shared that with other folks um, because I really believe in the power of creativity and I want other people to enjoy that power as well are all your books available online as well yes. as 
physical form? Yes, they're wherever books are sold, basically. If, if my books are not on the shelf in your local bookstore, they all can be ordered in. So anytime that you want to get a book, you can walk into your local bookstore, support an independent bookstore, and order a book in, but you can get them online. Definitely start with Spectral City. The Spectral City is book one in my newest series. Um, it's gotten a lot of acclaim so far. It's gotten some nice notice. Uh, it's gotten some great reviews. Um, it's been number one in new releases in Gaslamp Fantasy on Amazon, so that's really good to be a number one bestseller in my genre so thank you thank you in in my genre that i evidently helped create um about uh, you can put that on the me. next book i can put it uh, i can i can I, i'll see what, what kensington wants to do with that so um but yeah so so please do support the spectral city the great thing about the spectral city is that it is also available in audiobook which not all of my books are this is has an audiobook that i just love and the narrator her name is tavia gilbert and she's multiple award-winning narrator and she's wonderful and she does a great job with the book so um tan Tantor Audio, T-A-N-T-O-R. They're the audio company that did the audiobook, and you can download it from them for only $6.99. Uh, the ebook is only $3.99. So it's a really affordable ebook. It's a very affordable audiobook. The paperback itself is $15, which is not bad for a paperback book. Um, and so I love that this has been available. My publisher is really doing great things with this line. It's Kensington's brand new sci-fi fantasy line as of this year. Rebel Base Books is the imprint, and it's new as of this year to respond to um, you know, a need for within that house to have a sci-fi fantasy presence, and I'm really, really blessed to be with them. So. so quickly, if we can squeeze this last question in, when you are a writer, you are behind the scenes, you've been behind the scenes of the camera, you have an audio book, so when you watch other people's stuff, are you more critical because you know all the behind the scenes of it or less critical because you know all the behind the scenes of it? I try to just enjoy the story because when I am looking at somebody else doing something, I'm not on the I'm not on the clock. It's 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 on them. I I don't want to go into looking at other people's stuff critiquing it because then it feels like it's work. I like to sit back and let somebody entertain me. So, no, I enjoy in I enjoy seeing what other people have done with the art and the craft and appreciating that. I'm not somebody who goes in and, and nitpicks because I find that that lessens my enjoyment of it and entertainment should be entertaining. And with a minute left, uh, final thoughts. So we're going to have a final thought. Do final, you have a final thoughts. Thought? Yes. Um, uh, well, I hope that um, everyone has a wonderful holiday season, and I very much hope that you will join me on my various journeys of storytelling. Um, please do stop by my site. Please do, if anyone has any questions about stuff, if people are out there and creative and they want to be doing things and they want to be storytellers, there's so many ways in this modern world to be a storyteller. There's no right time. There's no, it's never too late to be a writer. It's never too late to be creative. It's never too early. So if you have a story in your heart, tell it. So my, oh, we got to... No, I was. I thought. I thought. I saw the audience going for it, but yep, then they yep, decided. Yep, there we go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, they, this they, is the they beauty. They weren't sure if I was done talking yet. They were being polite. <laughs> this we'll, is the we'll beauty of a live audience. Um, so my final thought is this: once again, it was an immense pleasure to interview you um, at the East Meadow. East Meadow. I said it right this time. Public Library. <laughs> Um, I really appreciate you coming down. Much continued success. You are, we still didn't scratch the surface of how many things. You just, there's so much to talk about. It, 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 well, that's I right. really, we'll have to do it again. Yes, yes. Um, so that about does it for this week on It Came From the Radio. Join us right here every week on this radio 
station. If you've missed any part of the show, go to our website, www.itcamefromradio.com. Listen to the archives if you have any week or so. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio. Um, we have a YouTube page. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that other fun stuff. Um, make sure you guys in who want to be come down for our next live show will be on the January 9th, and we're going to have Fairwin Cosplay as a guest, so make sure you guys come down for that, and we will see you next time. Thank you so much, and thank you to the East Meadow Public Library. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to It Came From The Radio with Mark Torres. The views of the show's hosts and guests did not necessarily reflect that of the management, owners, or staff of the station. We now return you to your earthly scheduled broadcast.